Hey guys, welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the US. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepon Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindava. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Today, we're sharing an interview that we had with Dr. Farhan Vafai. He has been actively involved in the public promotion of eye care, giving numerous presentations and talks at public events. He's also involved in teaching and supervising for optometry students at the University of Waterloo. Uh, He's the lead optometrist of the glaucoma program at iLabs, where he manages patients with general ophthalmology and glaucoma specialists. And he's also the optometric lead at Prism Eye Institute, a large 28-doctor multi-specialty practice where he works in collaboration with the world's leading glaucoma specialists. Once again, this interview was recorded over Zoom, so apologies in advance for any audio lag or distorted sounds. Enjoy! So Dr. Vafai, for anyone who does not know about you, um, for any of our listeners, would you mind please telling us a little bit more about yourself? Okay. Well, I, what can I say? I was, I graduated 2015 from the University of Waterloo. Uh, I live in sunny Brampton, Ontario, Canada. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, exactly. We found out some of us have some connections here, but I basically, I I, I work at two non-dispensing private practices for the past several years, a very heavy disease population. And I work very in close collaboration with ophthalmology colleagues, uh, I'd say both professionally and, and, and personally. Um, I also supervise fourth year clerkship students from the University of Waterloo. I teach family medicine residents uh, from McMaster University. Um, and as some of you may know, I'm, I'm involved in lecturing both industry and academic and, and, and online as well through the, through the IX platform. But I think, you know, if somebody was to describe or ask me to describe kind of how I, how do I see myself work-wise? I, I kind of see myself as both a, a teacher and a clinician equally. I don't really prioritize one over the other. Um, all my patients know their visits are going to be longer because there's a lot of teaching going on. It's a teaching clinic. And it's really the only way that I learn as a clinician, not the only way, but the main way I learn as a clinician is by teaching and, and actually having my students teach me. Um, I, I don't like it when students just, um, you know, sit there and kind of, as I'm saying things, just kind of say, yep, yep, yep. I, I, I love engagement. I love pushback. That's the kind of student I was. Um, so it, it, it pushes me as a, to become a better practitioner. Um, yeah. But that's, yeah. Cool. So I'll get, we'll get started with our very first glaucoma question. So at what stage in the disease or in what particular situations do you start to rely more heavily on functional changes for visual fields rather than structural changes within OCT or fundus photography? Uh, what's glaucoma? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, this is done. Oh, we have the wrong person, Devon, for this interview. Yeah, you me. misled us, Dr. Vifai. This yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea. I, I thought you guys were going to tell me. <laughs> you know, I think this is a good question. I, I get a lot of people who ask me, can I treat glaucoma if I don't have a visual field machine or if I don't have an OCT, if I can't properly analyze these things? And I think the gold standard for assessing changes in glaucoma is you actually have to have both. You have to, you can't separate the two. You can't say one or the other. Structural change actually doesn't always come before functional change or vice versa. Sometimes one precedes the other. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in, in short, I, from the beginning, if there's any suspicion, I don't separate the two. I start analyzing both at the same time. I mean, you guys had mm-hmm. a, you guys have talked about dry eye and dry eye. You don't only rely on symptoms. You also only don't rely on, on, on signs. Um, and so 
if I'm looking at I'm analyzing structure and function, and I want to say, okay, are there actual changes taking place? It actually goes back to how is it that I'm classifying? How is it that I classify glaucoma? And I'm big in classification because you can't really talk about glaucoma without talking about classification. And if you aren't classifying, you can't actually monitor progression properly. Um, so maybe I'll just go a little bit into kind of my thought process when it comes to classifying a glaucoma patient. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I do is I look at, is the patient, do they have open angles or closed angles? So mm -hmm. what do we, what's the diagnostic test that we use to determine this? Gonio. Yes. So without that gonio. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I feel like so a lot of optometrists don't do gonio at all. Yeah. They don't. And yeah. And I think part of it has to do with comfort. Part of it has to do with, well, I'm doing Van Herrick. I'm going to send it to the ophthalmologist yeah. anyway. I think it's very, very important. It's the gold standard for assessing whether the patient has open or closed angles. So we actually did a study that, that, that showed um, how angle structure changes with the amount of light going through the pupil or even landing on the iris. So when I do gonioscopy, my, I turn off all the lights in the room. I even turn off the monitor. I dim the rheostat all the way to dimmest. I make it a point light to the point where you actually, you can barely even see where you are. And I have the student look through the oculars and they're like, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at, but, but that's how I do my gonioscopy. And I do it, sorry, I do dynamic gonioscopy. So I'm compressing, I'm increasing light, decreasing light. I'm kind of trying to look over the hump to get a sense of how occludable these angles are. I think having the ability to be dynamic in our gonioscopy can actually give us a little bit of a better sense of, of, what's, of what's going on. Actually, there was a study done at our clinic. There was over 1,200 glaucoma referrals from general ophthalmology to glaucoma subspecialty. And out of those 1,200, 900 of them, so about 75%, had absolutely no angle data written in it. So either it wasn't being done or was being done, but it didn't say, it just said glaucoma. And then here's the crazy thing is uh, there was around 180 of these patients that were recorded as open. So gonioscopy was done or anterior was done, but 10% of those were actually closed. So the ophthalmologist said it's open, it's open angle glaucoma. I've been treating this open angle glaucoma patient for 10 years. They've been progressing. We take a look at the patient. We do proper gonioscopy. We do anterior CT. The patient is closed. So gonioscopy not being performed correctly by a lot of doctors. Mm -hmm. If you think your patient has open angle glaucoma, but their trabecular meshwork is inaccessible for the large portion of the day, mm -hmm. then you're treating them wrong. You can't just put them on drops. So when we're talking, so now if we're talking about closed angles, again, it's important, I think, to classify to again, watch for progression. So you guys may, I don't know if you guys have heard of the acronyms PACS, PAC, PACG. So PACS is a patient who is a primary angle closure suspect. A primary angle closure suspect is a patient who has 180 degrees or more of occludable angles. Okay. So next above that PAC, they're no longer a suspect, yeah. right? You're guilty, right? You now have angle closure. So these patients have, in addition to 180 degrees, they also have elevated IOP, have the presence of peripheral anterior synechiae, PAS. Okay. So PAC. Then next is PACG. Now the patient has glaucoma, they have visual field defects, or they have RNFL changes. So why is it important for us to know this? It's because there's risk of progression from one to the other. So there's some studies out there that have shown that there's about a 30% chance over a period of some studies out of India over, over five years to 30% um, chance of going from PACS to PAC to PACG. And so, sorry, my hands are getting, you're, you're <laughs> this. 
<laughs> audio audio <laughs> listeners don't know what's going on here. <laughs> um, but so so then okay, so then you have to treat them. Now when I'm looking at open, so now we've got closed angle, now we have our open angle patients. Again, getting into classification. Obviously, you want to classify are they primary open angle glaucoma or is it a secondary glaucoma? I won't get too much into secondary glaucoma, but you know, you're looking for TIDs, Krukenberg spindles, pseudoexfoliated material, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if it's primary or, or secondary, whatever it is, you need to classify se severity, right? You have to say, is it mild, moderate, or severe or advanced? Because that's going to help you set your IOP targets. If you don't have IOP targets, how are you treating the patient? How are you actually assessing whether you're treating them properly and why are they progressing or not progressing? But yeah, I think that's kind of a roundabout answer of, of you know, when we're looking at structure and function, I think in order to treat, you have to appropriately classify. And in order to appropriately classify, you have to be assessing both structure um, and function at the same time. Yeah, it makes sense because uh, we do get situations like that where um, sometimes we can detect a visual field defect in a patient where their nerve still looks relatively healthy or relatively okay when we're looking at it, even on an OCT, it won't really pick it up. So that's a really great answer that I feel like people need a little bit um, of a reminder of. I just had a question. When you're talking about dynamic gonio, you're just pushing on the eye to see if it's... So I compress. So if, if you're doing gonioscopy and, and you see corneal folds, you're mm -hmm. pressing too hard. Do right. you ever see those? Yeah. 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 means you're pressing All too hard. All the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All the time. So... <laughs> So one thing, I, I, I actually am big on finger positioning of when I'm controlling lids and lid control. When I have the lids completely controlled, I can just, just kind of gently touch the gonio. It's a corneal, I usually for, uh, forward mirror gonio, just gently touch on the cornea to the point where the tear film, like the interface between the lens and the cornea is fleeting. Like it's coming in and out. That's when I know I'm not compressing. If I'm compressing any more than that and I see a single corneal fold, I know I'm pressing too much and I'm artificially opening the angle. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, so then when I'm doing dynamic, then is when I press and I press fairly hard. Like the patient kind of winces and I, I hold their, I actually hold their head. I press and I see how does the angle open up. Sometimes then you'll see PAS that you actually thought was just a really narrow angle up and the area will actually stick and the rest of the angle will open up. It'll show me where a ciliary body is. Sometimes I think it's ciliary body, but it's actually trabecular meshwork. And I see, oh, actually, no, there's, there's ciliary body down there. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm And then I'm adjusting light. Okay. You'll see if you adjust light while you're doing gonio, the brighter you get, the more open the angle gets. Okay. And, and, and vice versa. Great. Um, I use a website a lot, gonioscopy.org. Yes. Yeah. It is that's an a really website. good learning tool to see different like uh, a lot of people who haven't seen any like PS or mm -hmm. like they want to know what type of pigment they're looking for yeah. or angle recession too so it's a very good website to kind of see all that yeah 100 um, percent. all you listeners out there go on to ganioscopy.org yes. i don't make any and money Root off atlas of it too Root Root atlas. Atlas. oh yeah yeah i don't make any money it's off of that either yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do we we don't make any money off we don't make any money <laughs> off of any of this so yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right. And this is kind of a little off topic to kind of going back to uh, your side, you use corneal hysteresis as well. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell me like how much you rely on that? And I know like a lot of optometrists don't have that in their yeah. office. Yeah. How important do you think this is? You know, it's one of those things that I, it's like, if I'm kind of borderline on a patient, do they need treatment? Do they need surgery? I, I, mm -hmm. I like to use that information 
in addition to everything else as part of mm -hmm. what tips in one way or the other. So um, we use the ocular response analyzer. So I'll use that if the patient is, let's say the patient, you know, looks like they're potentially progressing and their pressures are borderline and I get a hysteresis and the hysteresis is really low and they do have thin corneas and they have a mother who went blind from glaucoma. Like I take all those things into account and I say, you know what, we're done sitting on this. Like we need to do something about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you also use the OCTA or no? The OC, like OCT angiography? Angiography. Angiography. Yeah. yeah. Great question. No, I don't. Okay. And I know that that's kind of the next <clears throat> big thing, but um, no, we have one. I just, yeah. I don't use it for glaucoma. Um, mm -hmm. glaucoma works okay. Yeah. All right. Um, so, you know, as like new grads, like we do have experience in diagnosing patients with glaucoma and initiating treatment, but how are, we haven't practiced enough to monitor for progressions um, over time or develop that like long-term relationship with our patients. So in your clinical experience, what tools do you recommend using regularly to monitor for any glaucomatous progression? Good question. Very good question. <clears throat> Especially, I know when I first graduated, when I saw yeah. that one new point on the visual field, I was like, oh yeah. my God, they're, they're progressing. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I think the important- Or send it out, send it yeah, out. or send it out. Already. Yeah. So the important question, I think the, the important question is actually, are they progressing or not? You, you actually need to really confirm, is there progression mm -hmm. or not? Mm -hmm. Even, take it back one step further, you wanna know, is this patient even at risk of progressing, right? Oftentimes I'll get referrals of patients who, you know, they're, they got a normal pressure, they have no family history, and it looks like maybe there's a bit of a, maybe a bit of a visual field change on one visual field, or they had a little bit of an elevated IOP, or is that patient at risk of progressing? Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the OATS study, the ocular hypertension study, right? So it, it tells us, it, it, it tells us what is the risk of progression, right? They looked at a five-year span and they saw that patients with ocular hypertension who were treated had a 5% chance of developing glaucoma, and those who weren't treated had 10%. But then more importantly, the second stage of the OAT study looked at the effect of delayed treatment, right? So the patients who didn't receive treatment, seven and a half years later, then they initiated treatment, and they compared those to the patients who had treatment the entire time, and they looked over a 13-year span, right? So then they found, okay, the patients who actually go on to develop worse glaucoma or actually go on to develop glaucoma are the ones who are in the higher... Uh, band of this this risk factors. So what were the risk factors? You guys remember what the risk factors were? Corneal yeah. thickness. <laughs> yes. Central corneal thickness. What else? Yeah. Uh, age. Age. Great. Higher IOP, right? Baseline In the 30s. IOP, versus, yeah. yeah. If they have a, a larger pattern standard deviation, even on their visual field, mm -hmm. if they have a larger CD ratio, which is very subjective. And actually there's studies out there that show it's very difficult to actually monitor C mm -hmm. with CD ratio. Um, so then I look at those, okay, so does the patient have these risk factors? And, and then that helps me determine their risk of progression. Now, if the patient, you know, isn't progressing, first of all, if a patient isn't progressing, let's say they do have some um, damage. If they're not progressing, it's not glaucoma. Glaucoma is always going to progress, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it, you, you want to slow down progression. So this is a, a point I always try to drill home with my students is the question for the glaucoma patient isn't whether they're progressing or not. It's, are we able to slow their progression to a point where they're not going to experience functional vision loss before they die? Yeah. Can we slow it down to a point where they're not going to notice it? That's mm -hmm. what we're trying to do. We're not trying to completely halt progression. That's impossible. Yeah. Right. So now there are things <clears throat> that can 
make it seem as though the patient has glaucoma that has stopped, right? If the patient has resolved angle closure, they had angle closure glaucoma at one point, it's now open, the mechanism is no longer there to drive glaucoma, or they had a previous episode of an IOP spike, they have damage to the nerve and visual field, but that driving factor no longer exists. So that patient's not going to progress. That patient doesn't have glaucoma. But what often happens is these patients are diagnosed as normal tensive glaucoma or normal tension glaucoma because the patient's pressure is fine, but you see there's a bunch of damage, a corresponding visual field defect with, with structural um, defect, and they're put on meds for life. So these patients, I like to observe these patients, right? I look and I see there's nothing else going on. There's some damage there. I'd rather just watch, get some strong baseline data. Mm-hmm. And I'll go into how, what, what is that data that I use for progression, but I get some strong baseline data and I actually watch to see if they're getting worse. Okay, so now how am I monitoring for progression? So I'm monitoring with structure and then function, right? So for structure, so what do I do? Um, so I use, not very often, but I use a Heidelberg retinal uh, tomographer, so HRT. I think it's really good for those weird looking nerves, like a myopic nerve or really tilted nerve. It measures the actual rim profile. I really like color photos of the nerve. Obviously, for all these patients, I'm doing slit lamp exam, right? But a color photo of the nerve is nice to have it there documented. I can put them side by side and see if there's actual change to the, to the rim. And that's the only way, again, aside from using the microscope, it's the only way that you're going to see if there's an actual Drantz hemorrhage, right? You're not going to, it doesn't mm-hmm. show up on OCT. Um, but, I mean, you guys mentioned it, the gold standard. What, what I heavily rely on is RNFL uh, analysis, parapapillary and macular ganglion cell analysis. So there's two types of measurements that you're looking at when you're looking at OCT. One is the absolute measurement of RNFL thickness. It gives you a number in microns. Mm-hmm. It's not always that helpful, but there's, there's reasons why you would look at it. But the other is that age-matched comparison to the normative database. It's important, I think, as clinicians, when a machine is interpreting data for us, because we're going to be relying more and more heavily on machines interpreting data for us. If we're relying on a machine for interpreting data, we need to understand how is it that that machine is interpreting data so that we can pick up the times when it's not interpreting it um, correctly. It actually always interprets it correctly. It's just our understanding of it. So, mm-hmm. so first of all, when we look at the database, do you guys know? Do you guys know what the normative database is? Like, how many people are in the normative database? No, I don't know that. No. <laughs> you, okay. So, if you had to guess, hundreds, thousands, or tens of thousands, what would you say? I would say thousands. Thousands. I'm going to yeah. say ten thousand. 10, I would say hundreds. Hundreds, okay. okay, all right. We're going to so, be right no matter on what. On a beach. Perfect. There is right. f- f- five people. No, I'm joking. What? <laughs> <laughs> Although we should know this, but... <laughs> you should know this. So yeah. well, each, company, each company is different. Um, so the Zeiss one, the Cirrus, is 284 people. Topcon is 137. Spectral is 201. So you're, you're right in the hundreds. Um, so small number when you would think like your all your data is being compared to, yeah. to this couple hundred people. Um, they're all around between 19 to 85 years old or so, yeah. depending on the machine. And then it doesn't include high myopes, doesn't include um, right. high hyperopes. Yeah. So a patient yeah. who's a high myope, you can't compare because you don't have a normal database for a high myope. A child yeah. does not fall within the normative database. Yeah. So it's difficult to interpret that data. So the OCT, when interprets the data, it can diagnose what we call red disease. Have you guys heard of red disease? Mm-hmm. Do you guys yeah. know what red disease is? 
It's deadly. It's deadly, right? <laughs> it's when the OCT says the patient is within the one percentile. That doesn't mean that it's actually a disease. Yeah. And there's lots of different reasons why the patient can have red disease, a myopic nerve, for example, is one. But things like focal signal loss, uh, curve shift artifact, segmentation error, motion artifact, all these things, you guys can look these up. You're recording this. People who are listening, go look those things up. Those are things that will cause you to think that the patient is actually diseased. It's up to us as the clinician to determine whether that deviation is pathological or not, right? It's really yeah. important to be able to analyze that data and yeah. interpret it appropriately to actually see whether or not the patient is progressing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then when I look at function, obviously visual field is what we're looking at. Um, uh, I mean, I always use the Humphrey, but I also use what's called a compass visual field. It's really nice. It overlays the uh, visual field onto a retinal photograph. And so if the patient has something on the retina and you see there's a, a visual field defect, you can say, well, it's actually coming from retina and not from the nerve. Um, but with that, I'm looking at, you know, you can look at event-based progression or trend-based. But when I look at that trend, but you know, that graph that kind of shows a visual field index mm -hmm. declining over time. So now look, if it's a 55-year-old patient and they're losing some vision over a period of five years, I want to be more aggressive. Whereas if it's an 85-year-old patient and they're, they're still losing vision and they're going to lose a certain chunk of their vision over five years, I've had that conversation with that patient, especially if they're maxed out on drops and they have to do a surgery. It might be, a, you know, it might be the type of thing they say, well, that's fine. You know, if I notice a change, but structurally things look stable, I typically will repeat the field. Um, but that's what I do. Yeah. So actually, um, kind of adding on to what you just mentioned, um, because you did say that you'll take a certain amount of action based on if their visual field progression um, on the VFI, you know, looks like if they're 50 years old and they're losing a lot of function over the next five years and you would take action in your professional opinion, then what specific rate of glaucoma progression on that progression index do you consider as clinically significant when you're looking at that rate of functional, functional change? It's, I don't have a hard and fast rule for it. Mm -hmm. For RNFL mm -hmm. changes, I mean, if I'm looking at structural changes, so normal yeah. attenuation, if you're looking per year, there's some studies that have shown it's about 0.5 to 0.6 microns per year. Um, in a patient who has glaucoma, it's about, it can be up to two to four times that, one to two microns per year. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm looking at, and, and in both cases, it's important to, to look at where it's not actual progression, where it looks like it might be a, a, a significant progression, but it isn't. So like I talked about in red disease, if you have, if your patient tilts their head, for example, for one of the exams, the entire yeah. RNFL curve is going to get shifted. Or if they have developing cataract, they have lower, less signal, or if they've moved segmentation error, it can make it look like that RNFL has, has thinned out when it actually yeah. hasn't. So that is, I'm looking at that reliability. If I'm trying to measure change and I'm relying on visual field and, uh, and, and OCT, sometimes both of those things are extremely unreliable. Yeah. And then I'm really just using fundus photography and, and fundus exam and IOP to manage the patient. There's no other thing you can do. If they're a terrible mm -hmm. field taker and they're OCT, they have tremors, they can't do OCT. Um, yeah. So I sometimes have to do that. But regardless, if I'm, again, looking at that progression and that rate of progression, a really important thing is if you're treating glaucoma or if you're co-managing with the treatment of glaucoma, and at some point treatment is augmented or, you know, you add a new drop or they're sent for laser or surgery, 
what's going to happen is their IOP is going to become controlled and that progression is going to lessen. So you got that kind of downward slope and then it flattens out. Well, that progression line is still going to show a downward slope. It's going to always look like they're progressing despite your last few points having flattened out. So it's yeah. really important to actually reset the baseline data. And if your technicians mm -hmm. are doing it, if you're doing it, you go back to the machine, you reset the baseline data, you got to get all new baseline measurements, and then you can watch for, um, watch for progression. Yeah. Um, and then actually the last thing with progression I think is important is sometimes you'll have progression that you think is statistically significant, but your IOP always measures normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. So mm -hmm. what are some things that can cause that? Like, are we talking about like IOP is getting higher in the evening? Yeah. Diurnal? So you could have like a big diurnal. IOPs? Yes. Major mm -hmm. fluctuations. They always come <laughs> in the office, measure pressure, measures fine but their, their pressure is fluctuating, so they get progression. Sorry, do you ever uh, use any like home eye care, like, you know, the, uh, I forgot what it's called, but it's gonna eye care I, for, I, for home or yeah. like trigger fish? Yeah, totally. No, no, yeah, the trigger, no trigger yeah, fish. Trigger <laughs> is kind of a cool, yeah, that's kind of a cool idea. I don't think that that's, yeah. it didn't really work out very well, but the eye care, yeah. um, yes, we rent it out to patients. They take it okay. home uh, for a yeah. week. Yeah, we get them, tell them to take as many pressure measurements. And oftentimes what we'll find, Patient is always measuring 15, 16, 17 in office. They get these spikes up to 30 after the exercise. Wow. Right? We see that in pigment dispersion. Then we're yeah. like, okay, that explains your progression. Now we know why. Now we know we mm -hmm. need to actually keep your pressure. <laughs> right? And then there's cases where it's not glaucoma. You think it looks like glaucoma progression. The thing about, I just want to mention about normal tension glaucoma is it should be a diagnosis of exclusion. Yeah. You need to rule out all these other things first. You need to rule out the pressure fluctuating, that they have open angles, all these other things before you can say, okay, fine. They have no more tensile yeah. glaucoma because it's very difficult to treat. Right? Yeah, very true. And actually, you just mentioned um, eye care home tonometry. So that kind of goes into our next question because, you know, now with COVID-19, a lot of probably even elderly glaucoma patients probably feel concerned about attending multiple glaucoma visits throughout the year. And some clinics have opted for at-home tonometry devices like the eye care home even drive-through IOP checks, and even some clinics I've seen have virtual reality visual field tests that are probably just easier to clean and um, probably run faster. I actually don't know the timing of how long it takes to perform them. Um, so at your clinics, have you guys considered any other alternative glaucoma testing methods to monitor their progression at home now with COVID-19? Yeah, like I said, we do at-home tonometry, but actually we haven't been doing it with because of COVID. Um, because, mm -hmm. you know, and, and for a patient, I mean, we really only use it to measure diurnals. We don't use it um, for a patient to take home to take an IOP measurement instead of them coming in. It's, it's expensive. It's an expensive um, yeah. machine. So we, we, I mean, we haven't been doing drive-through. Uh, what we often will do is if a patient's coming in for other diagnostic tests that we don't do at home, the technician will actually measure the IOP at that point as well. They'll do golden tonometry. Um, a lot of our technicians are, you know, foreign trained optometrists, so, things, so they're, they're, they're very good at it. Um, so that then a visit, a follow-up visit can actually be done virtually. I mean, if you have the IOP, you have retinal photographs, you have all the diagnostic testing, the patient doesn't actually necessarily then need to come in on a separate day to see the doctor. Yeah. Um, in terms of at-home visual field testing, I know there's some, you know, up-and-coming technology um, I haven't had any experience with it. There's, there's some that I have an eye I'm, I'm watching out for because I do think that there's a place for it. Um, but, you know, I think ODs are a skittish bunch. And I know maybe Americans are a little bit more uh, uh, gung-ho, but in Canada, there's always this fear of 
you know, are they going to still come to get their eyes checked if they're just doing it at home? Are they going to skip out on their routine exam? Um, but I think that's the job of us as a publisher to educate the public, the job of our associations to educate the public, mm-hmm. that these sorts of things can really help augment the, the yeah. care that these patients are receiving. Yeah. Based on the functional laws defined by the visual field results. So when do you start beginning to discuss with your patients um, about like low vision and rehabilitation? You know, most, most of my glaucoma patients I'm seeing in a tertiary care setting. So they do have a primary care optometrist. And oftentimes I'm not familiar with the services that the primary care optometrist may, may provide because these patients are from all over Ontario. So I don't usually send out for low vision, but I will send a report back to the primary care optometrist saying this patient may need so that they can at least facilitate that, especially if they themselves are offering low vision. I don't want to mm-hmm. step on their toes and send them to a different low vision specialist. Mm-hmm. If it's in my primary care setting, you know, I, I'll refer them to low vision rehab depending on what they do and what they want to do. And um, patients obviously are at risk of falls. You know, they, they may say, I don't like to go out much. And I'll say, well, is it because you don't like to go out much or is it because you have a hard time navigating or you find you're bumping into things, right? And, and sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll be able to answer that question. I mean, it's the same with cataract. I don't like to drive. Well, is it because you can't see or is it because you just don't like to drive? Like, ah, I feel uncomfortable. Okay, it's time for your cataract surgery. I approach it in the same way with, with visual field loss. When the patient, I, I have that conversation with the patient and then and I look to refer to them at that point. Okay. Um, so a lot of older patients who have mobility issues have a hard time getting their drops in. Um, so what are your alternative methods of treatments for these patients? Yeah, drops, drops suck. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> terrible, too. right? There's nothing positive, to, especially with glaucoma <laughs> drops, right? There's compliance issues, handling issues, ocular surface disease. It's a big one. So if you actually look at, okay, do the patients actually need drops? So right. SLP, selectively the trabecular opacity versus drops. Um, what do you guys, what would you offer as a first line? Let's say you have a patient who has glaucoma. Would you offer to put them on drops first or would you offer to put, give them some laser? Let's say you had easy access to doing SLT. I guess it depends for SLT, right? Because you would have to do a gonio first to see if there's enough pigment there. But I don't know, my first line would be drops. Yeah, so ODs, that's what we can do, right? Um, yeah. SLT, yeah, you're right. Uh, in, in pigmented folks, it does work better, but in patients who have little pigmentation, you, you can still get an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a study that was done, it was called the LIGHT trial, yeah. mm-hmm. the multi-center, yeah, randomized control trial. It actually showed from a cost perspective, from an IOP control perspective, the requirement for subsequent glaucoma surgery perspective, SLT wins. And I know we can't do this in, the, in, in Canada, and most states in the U.S. can't either, but if you're in an urban center, you have easy access to ophthalmology, you have a close relationship with your ophthalmologist, I would send these patients for SLT, try to get them off of their drops. Okay, so now patients who SLT doesn't work for, right? Some are non-responders or they, you, you can't access them. Actually, what I do, I actually just had another patient today. I give them a bottle of artificial tears and I say, show me how you put the drop in. And A, it, first of all, it's amazing like what, what some people do. Some patients will come in with beat red eyes and I think it's from the drops and I see that they're actually scraping their entire bulbar conge <laughs> with the tip of the bottle to put the drop in or they're they're putting it they're closing their eye and they're putting it on their lid actually today this lady literally shoved the bottle tip all the way under her lid and scraped all inside of her lid I was like oh man so this is so so I watched that because then it can also explain pressure fluctuations like the patient isn't, isn't putting the drops in compliance so I, I then show them, right? I show them how to like pull the lower lid down, put mm-hmm. them into your conch sac. 
usually I will ask family members to help this family member in the room and they see then how their mother is putting drops in. Usually they're like, Oh my God, mom, what are you doing? <laughs> so um, oftentimes actually what happens is pretty big decisions are made. Sometimes the parents are, or the, the kids are like, all right, that's the last straw. Like you're moving in with us or we're, we're getting mm-hmm. somebody to come in and help you. Now there's cases where none of this can work. And I would say next step is if a patient can't put drops in their eyes, MIGS, microinvasive glaucoma surgery, right? I recommend that for patients who are intolerant to drops, who are not compliant with drops. These are all in the same category. We need to give them something that can reduce their drop burden. As optometrists, we know that that is an option. That's an option that's available for our patients and we need to be able to offer it to them and we can offer it earlier. We need to look at glaucoma from an interventional standpoint. Yeah. How often um, do you tend to send them with the, you know how some people will refer them at the same time with the carex surgery? Do you tend to do that with your patients? hundred percent. If a patient has cataract and they have yeah. glaucoma, even if it's mild, I am sending them to a cataract surgeon who does MIGS. hundred percent. Yeah. Get them off those drugs. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, I think I remember when we were um, in one of our earlier podcast episodes, we talked about fighting blindness Canada um, mm-hmm. And I think they were promoting a campaign where they were trying to get MIGS procedures approved by provincial insurance, or they were really trying to promote more patients to get access to MIGS, especially earlier on, because it sounded like that Canada, um, uh, Canadian patients have a hard time getting access to that. Um, do your patients have a difficult time getting access to MIGS procedures or is it just a long wait time? I mean, I'm, I'm going to give a very biased answer here. I mean, I'm coming, I'm coming from a practice where it was almost the birthplace of MIGS. So in terms of funding, in terms of access to, to MIGS is, um, is based on the hospital and uh, Trillium and, and the doctors associated with Trillium have, you know, access is not an issue here. Problem is when other docs come and they get trained here and then they go back to Quebec or they go to BC and then the patient's out of pay or they don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think it's a huge thing. I think, they, I think it should be something that is offered to all patients. Yeah, definitely. So are there any new developments in glaucoma? So any new diagnostic tools, technologies, or medications that's maybe available in the States, but that's not available in Canada yet and you wish you had access to? I think I'm pretty fortunate, again, as I mentioned, um, where I'm practicing and the funding that's available in the hospital allowing for pretty cutting edge treatment. So, you know, there's not, nothing really that comes to mind. At, so the, the practice PRISM, I that I'm at, they have a fellowship program. It's called the GAS Fellowship for Glaucoma and um, Advanced Anterior Segment Surgery. So, I mean, they're bringing in fully trained, licensed ophthalmologists from around the world. They do a one or two year training with I mean, these are giants in the glaucoma field, people like... Ike Ahmed, Devish Varma, these guys. And, you know, if, if you are familiar with surgical glaucoma, like Ike Ahmed is basically known as the father of, of MIGS. And he's really responsible for shifting the world of ophthalmology, thinking from glaucoma care being medical management and a watch and wait disease to, to being interventional. Mm-hmm. And um, so really, I think the philosophy at PRISM and with PRISM-trained doctors that is if you can perform procedures that are minimally invasive, you can reduce risk of adverse events, reduce drop burden, intervene sooner rather than later. Um, I think it's the future of glaucoma care. I think eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a complete shift towards that. It's, it's exciting to be a part of it. Yeah. And actually, so you are one of the, like you mentioned, one of the lead optometrists at Prism Eye Institute and also the lead optometrist of the glaucoma program at iLabs. 
And both of these positions involve heavy co-management with glaucoma patients with the OMDs or the ophthalmologists. So as the optometrist, what is your, I guess, main role in the patient's care and management compared to the ophthalmologist, even though it's collaborative? Like, what, do you, what are your main responsibilities for the patient compared to the OMD? You know, I'm a firm believer that practitioners, like we should all be pushing our boundaries of our scope of practice. Right? We all need to be advancing. Everybody, optometrists, and we should all be kind of working at the higher level. You know, there's a large amount of overlap between what optometrists and what opticians do. There's a large amount of overlap between what optometrists and ophthalmologists do. And so I think we should be positioning ourselves in a way where you're not doing redundant work. So if you're co-managing with an ophthalmologist, like what use is it if you're just kind of doing the same thing at the same time? It makes no sense, right? So if I'm practicing at my highest level, then it actually allows for that ophthalmologist to then actually reduce those patient visits. So they're not actually seeing the patient as often and they can focus more time on complex cases. So I think if you're in a case where you have a relationship with your local ophthalmologist and you're in contact with one another, um, I think it's ideal to have the patients alternate their visits between the OD and the MD. But what that requires is the MD has to be comfortable in, in my clinical judgment so that if the patient, if the ophthalmologist normally sees this patient every six months, they can let me see that patient six months follow-up. And if that patient's pressure is elevated, I don't go and ask the MD's permission to change medication. I do it. I will change medication. I'll change, I'll augment things. I'll move things around. Obviously, I let them know like we're in contact with one another, but I'm trained to treat glaucoma. I do it. And it could be that, okay, the day that the patient is with the MD, it's a high volume clinic. The visit really is, are they meeting their targets? Do they need surgery? Is there progression? Then when they're with me, I'm looking at those things and they have a little bit more time. I'm looking maybe at ocular surface. I may be doing diagnostic tests that the ophthalmologist isn't doing. Like they're not always doing retinal photography. I do that. So then we can compare. And, and so that's, that's kind of how I differentiate it. Yeah. Um, now, in, in, in the other case, like at, at, at PRISM, it's really a hand-in-hand relationship that I have. So at PRISM, our patients, they understand they've been referred to a team and that they're going to see a doctor of that team. OD, MD, it doesn't matter. Um, and in this case, it becomes very fluid. So aside really from slip lamp procedures or surgery, the patient has a hard time telling like who the optometrist is, who the ophthalmologist is. They just know they're coming in to see their eye care team. And, um, and again, in that way, I can focus on seeing things that I normally wouldn't see in a primary care practice, and the ophthalmologist can, can focus more on, on, on procedures. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really think this is, this is it, the future of eye care provides much better access for patients. Yeah. So for optometrists that are just working in a primary care setting and they don't have ophthalmologists there, in Ontario, is it true that optometrists are only allowed to treat and manage patients with just primary um, open angle glaucoma? And then they'll have to refer for like all the other different forms of glaucoma? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you if it, they can only treat in um, Ontario at this point, uh, what's within the scope of practice is treating primary open angle glaucoma. Now, because I'm co-managing with ophthalmology, I'm treating everything: uveitic glaucoma, yeah. you know, right. vask, all that kind of thing. But um, um, yeah, that's that's what it is in Ontario right now. Okay, as we kind of like stated before, so Prism Eye Institute is just a large. 28 doctor, uh, multi-specialty practice. So in your personal experience, what are the best parts about working with such a large dynamic environment? Uh, there's lots. I mean, um, I would say, first of all, I mean, having all the different subspecialties working like 
mm-hmm. you know, a couple doors down from you is extremely helpful. If you have a UV glaucoma patient, for example, it's likely they've been cared for by our in-house mm-hmm. UV specialist at some point. So I have all that information at my fingertips. I can easily go have a chat with them, see if they need to see them at all. Um, the, the size of the practice allows for there to be an entire research arm um, within the practice. Yeah. So if we want research questions answered, we have research fellows, PhDs, the design studies, mm. extract grant money, allows for, you know, the fact that it's also a large practice, for us to have access to fairly sophisticated diagnostic technology that's, I mean, normally just found in hospitals. Um, and then also, I think because you have these kind of really well, it, it, a practice like this attracts people who are doctors who are well-known, and then that attracts very interesting referrals from across the world um, with very, very unique diseases. So it is a, every day I am learning something new, every day. All right. So those are the good. What about the challenges? <laughs> challenges. Yeah. yeah what are some challenges of that? Yeah, that's a, oh, that's parking. a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, with COVID, I can park anywhere I want. <laughs> so yeah. Park. Yeah. Um, no, you know, challenges, you know, there's not a lot. I mean, I would say the one thing if with, with a larger business, you know, mm-hmm. thing, things can become a bit slower. Like if you have a one doc practice, if I want to change a protocol, I can change it tomorrow. It's done. The clinic has changed. But when you have close to 30 docs, um, yeah. you can imagine that over a hundred staff, like it's a bit of a mm-hmm. slower beast to move. So I think that's kind of one of the challenges of working in a larger place. Yeah. And then lastly, you know, uh, what are some tips that you'd like to share with us and also any other new grads like our listeners who are just now beginning to develop relationships with their glaucoma patients? Like how can we maintain these relationships long-term? What kind of um, tips can you share with us? So a few things. So first of all, you don't want to become known as the person who's just, like if you're co-managing this patient, you don't want to be the person who just checks their glasses or or is perception of the person who's just checking their glasses. Because yeah. then, then if it comes to a point where you want to make a change or you want to recommend something, they're like, okay, cool. Well, let me just go ask my ophthalmologist, right? If you have as robust an understanding of their disease as their ophthalmologist does, and you, and you portray that to the patient, the patient understands that, then what you tell them, it will go a long way. Part of that, I think, actually has to do with, um, I know it's not in relationship with patients, but your relationship with your local ophthalmologists. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important for new grads to get out there and meet them. They're not just going to send you patients right away. They have no idea who you are and what you do, mm-hmm. right? But you go show up, well, eventually show up to conferences, um, introduce yourself, show interest, shadow, all these things. It's worth it. You're going to build that relationship, build the trust. You're going to show that you have interest in it. And then you want to reach a point where people know you for your work, and then they're going to seek you out for your professional opinion within whatever subspecialty you are, you know, binocular vision, anything. Yeah. I'd say also with, with building that relationship with your parents or pa- patients and your parents, no. <laughs> you want to, um, you, I, a big part of it is they also just want to be heard. And, and as an optometrist, you may have a bit more time to hear them, right? Not a whole lot more, but you may have a, a few more minutes than the ophthalmologist does. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I find is, being able to empathize with them, especially with the drops. I find when, when volume goes up and a patient comes in and isn't taking their drops, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. I say, oh, you didn't take your drops today. I got to see that a couple of weeks, take your drops by. Because I, got, I have a whole bunch of other patients I got to see. Yeah. Whereas if I have a bit more time, it's like, okay, you know what? I know these drops are terrible, right? Have you guys actually ever tried glaucoma drops? Like, have you put Kosoft in your eyes? Mm-mm. Oh, get a sample of Kosoft to put in your eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. My <laughs> eye burn the entire day. Right? Oh, it's yeah. terrible. 
So it, when I put my, that drop in my eye, I was like, holy crap, no wonder these patients don't like using these drops. And I'm harping on them, like, why don't you take it? Why don't you take it? Why don't you yeah. take it? So I think really empathizing with them, like, this is painful. And, and then, again, because we're primary care, we can offer other things like ocular surface, mm-hmm. treatment, all that sort of thing. You also need to emphasize their vision loss, like a lot of mm-hmm. them, actually. Glaucoma is a type of disease that's almost always picked up late, right? Because it's yeah. symptomless in its initial stages. These patients are racked with guilt because they show up too late. They were asymptomatic. They're now depressed. They've had their license pulled. Yeah. And the only thing you can do that they will, these patients will always ask, what did I do? What could I have done? Who? And they're looking for somebody to blame at some point, ultimately, even if it's themselves, what you need to do is focus on what's good. Oftentimes they'll have good central vision, right? So help mm-hmm. them focus on the task they can do. And then the other thing I think, which is a great relationship builder, which I have found actually is, Patients who come in who were seen by a ophthalmologist in the past and were diagnosed with glaucoma, it happens very often, especially the ones who were diagnosed like years ago. I look at them, I'm like, you do not have glaucoma. And I can actually reduce their drop burden. I'll take them off drops, I'll watch, I'll watch their pressure, I make sure they're not progressing, I'll watch carefully. Mm-hmm. But if you take these over-medicated patients off their drops, You've won them. You've won this patient for life. You've safely reduced yeah. their drop burden or even switch them to preservative-free jobs, even adding mm-hmm. artificial tears. Nobody's addressed these things. Yeah. Don't ever think that the previous doctor, Thomas's ophthalmologist, whoever it was, was a god and made the correct decision. Yeah. Especially yeah. if that diagnosis was made 15, 20 years ago. Our understanding mm-hmm. of glaucoma has significantly changed. And that's what I tell the patients. Mm-hmm. I say, you weren't misdiagnosed. Our understanding of glaucoma has just changed. It right. does not look like you have glaucoma. You don't need these drops anymore. Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, the patient will think you cured their glaucoma when, in fact, all you did was, you know, just took them off of the medication. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, you know, for, for all the new grads that are out there, whatever it is that you're interested in, I think, and if there's students who listen to this as well, take the time to find what it is that you're interested in mm-hmm. and go for it. I have students who come and say, hey, I want to do this specialty. I want to do that specialty. And I ask them like one question, like, like why? And they're like, uh, I think it's kind of cool. Like you actually need to know why, why it is that you want to pursue a certain subspecialty. Mm-hmm. And if that is really the, the, the types of, com- because of specific types of patients, but dry eye patients are a very specific type of patient, right? Yeah. Local <laughs> patients, they all have a very particular, there's, there's certain challenges that they all have. Yeah. And you need to know if you're okay with having a full day of seeing patients like that. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, go up there, shadow, see these clinics, see what they're like. Rav and I will just call you and yeah. send we'll just shadow you. you and we're back. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just you come You can shadow and... him and Dr. Maharaj. Yeah. yeah. No problem. Yeah, we could do a two in one. We could do a two for one visit. That'll be nice. Hundred percent, two for one. There's lots of two for one opticals in Brampton. Actually, you can even get some. Of get two, three for one opticals. Actually, three. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, Doctor Vafai, that was great. I mean, you answered everything that we wanted to know. I feel like we learned a lot of new stuff today. Yeah. Um, I think what you and Doctor Maharaj and Doctor Camera and now. Um, and Dr. Nguyen, I mean, you guys are doing great things. And yes. I'm really thankful that we discovered learning during quarantine because as, as U.S. trained Canadian optometrists, you know, during our four years of optometry school, uh, I, I could personally say I think I felt pretty disconnected from Canadian optometry. I'm yes. sure um, the other girls mm-hmm. kind of felt like that too. So yeah. just getting to know you guys and seeing the webinars that you guys were presenting – that were taught by Canadian optometrists, it just, um, 
it was really refreshing. And um, mm-hmm. so, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that you came on here today and spent some time with us to teach us more. Yeah, we're constantly awesome. learning too. So this was great. Yeah, those are it's one of the good. best webinars we have uh, came across. So yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. With, like the webinars are amazing. Like I, they are. Think I'm always like my mind is always blown, and I'm just like, oh my god, I didn't. And know And the that, personalities or... are great too. That's, yeah. that's what kind of makes it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, thanks about. so much that's for setting it up. About. Guys, thank you yeah. so much for having me. It was great. Yes. You guys are doing wonderful work. <laughs> wonderful work. Keep it up. Yeah, and thank please you. Come visit. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Stay tuned.